This week's show is appropriate for all ages. Zeppelins! Escape Pod 334 March 1st, 2012 The Echoner Alternative by James L. Cambias Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Mer Lafferty. I'm coming down with a cold, so I'll keep it short this week. This week's story is The Eckner Alternative by James L. Cambius. Mr. Cambius is a writer and game designer who lives in western Massachusetts. His work has appeared in Nature, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and several anthologies. The Eckner Alternative first appeared in 2004 in the original anthology All-Star Zeppelin Adventure Stories, edited by David Moles and Jay Lake. So buckle in, because when this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious story time. The Eckner Alternative by James L. Cambius The Hindenburg swung gently on the mast at Lakehurst as the sky over New Jersey turned to purple twilight. All the passengers, the reporters, the newsreel men were gone. A couple of sailors stood guard beneath the big ship to enforce the no-smoking rule. John Cavalli waited until the watchman below had turned away, then slid down the stern rope to the ground. He hunkered down next to the big rolling anchor weight for a couple of minutes, then hurried off into the darkness beyond the floodlights. Once he was clear, Cavalli stopped to peel off the Russian Army Arctic Commando suit he'd been wearing ever since the Zeppelin had lifted off from Frankfurt am Main. It had kept him warm as he hid among the gas cells with his IR goggles and fire extinguisher, but now in the warmth of a spring evening it was stifling. He hit the return button on his wristband and disappeared. You can't make big changes, said the instructor of the first day of temporal studies class. He was a very laid-back physicist recruited from California in the 2020s. That's the most important rule. The folks we work for are the result of a particular set of historical events. Change history too much, and their probability level drops below 50%. If that happens, all this, his gesture encompassed the time center, goes away and we're out of a job, if we even exist anymore. A student in the row ahead of Cavalli raised his hand. What about making little changes? Little changes are fine. We make little changes all the time. Most of them are things like making long-term investments, buying up art treasure for safekeeping, keeping species from going extinct, that kind of thing. You're going to learn all about gauging the effects of changes, avoiding heterodynes and chaotic points, and when it's okay to step on butterflies. Cavalli was listening, but in the margin of his notebook he was doodling airships. The time gate stage was dark and the control room was empty, just as he'd left it. The Coke can was still on the console. Was it maybe a little further to the left than he remembered? He stepped off the stage and took a drink. Still tasted the same. It would take a pretty big time shift to change the flavor of Coca-Cola. Cavalli locked the door behind him with his purloined master key. The time center used mechanical locks because they were a bit more resistant to minor time shifts, and headed for the library. He found a book about Zeppelins he didn't remember and skimmed the pages. Hindenburg served safely until 1939, scrapped when World War II broke out. No post-war Zeppelins. The usual return of the airship speculations. Damn, it hadn't worked. 
He had hoped erasing the vivid image of the Hindenburg fire would have been enough to keep passenger airships alive, but the war still marked the end of their era. So why don't we stop things like the Holocaust or the firebombing of Dresden? It was a relatively quiet dorm room party, with half a dozen trainees blowing off steam after the first written exam. Cavalli didn't see who asked the question, but he sounded drunk. Anna Kyle, the third-year trainee, answered, Too big. The models predicted major shifts in the 21st century if there's no Holocaust. You lose the Cold War and the whole Jihad era. We just stay away from World War II if we can help it. Rescue a few things from the museums before they get flattened. Take some videos for historians. That's all. Why not stop the whole war? Kill Hitler in 1918? Everybody from the 20th and 21st wants to do that. Or maybe kidnap him as an infant and leave him with a nice family of Buddhists in Tibet? The answer is forget it. Removing the biggest conflict in human history makes the bosses go poof, not to mention just about everyone else born after 1950 or so. Frankly, we don't know what history would look like if you changed something that big. Cavalli was waiting outside the Houses of Parliament when Lord Thompson came out, trailing a crowd of aides and hangers-on. The monocle in Cavalli's eye displayed a targeting circle, and he swung the umbrella up until the bright circle was centered on the side of the air minister's neck. He squeezed the handle, and the umbrella fired off a smart dart loaded with pneumonia bacilli. Thompson was pretty healthy. He'd get over it in a few months. Plenty of time for the Cardington team to get the R-101 really airworthy. There was a candy bar next to his Coke when he returned. He didn't remember getting one from the snack bar. It was a Heath bar, his favorite brand. He ate it on the way to the library. The British Imperial Airship Service had had a rocky start, but by 1935 there were direct routes to Canada, India, South Africa, and Australia. Plans to extend the service to New Zealand were put on hold in 1936 and abandoned when war broke out. The airships served as fleet scouts for the Royal Navy during the first years of the war. The Japanese shot down R-100 and R-103, and R-101 was scrapped in 1940. R-102 was used to evacuate some key people from Singapore as the Japanese approached, made an epic flight home to England via Africa and the Azores, and spent the rest of the war in a hangar at Cardington before being donated to the Royal Air Museum. In his room, he watched a movie on video disc about the last flight of R-102, with Michael York as the heroic captain. At lunch one day, Anna asked the big question. So, if you could change one thing, what would it be? The other trainees gave the usual answers. Save Jesus, kill Hitler, stop Cortez, save Lincoln, give machine guns to Lee. Cavalli shrugged. Find some way to save the airships, I guess. A couple of people who knew him just rolled their eyes, but Anna looked curious. How come? I just think they're cool. He clung to the fabric covering of the Akron as she cruised over the New Jersey coast. It was a lot harder to stow away aboard a Navy airship than a passenger craft. His first two attempts had ended in quick aborts when he ran into sailors inspecting the gas cells, so finally he moved the focus to a point just above the ship and hoped nobody was watching. Keeping a careful hold, he pulled out the radio handset and began tapping out the Morse code message he had written on the sleeve of his commando suit. It had all the proper authentications and ordered the Akron to return to base at once. By the time they straightened out the hoax, the line squall would be long past. The Coke was in a bottle when he stepped off the stage. 
He finished it as he leafed through a big glossy coffee table book about Navy airships in World War II. There was an exciting picture of Akron going down amid a swarm of zeros at the Battle of the Coral Sea, and some photos of Macon on U-boat patrol over the Atlantic. The last page of the book was a fundraising appeal from the USS Macon Association, hoping to finish the restoration project and get her airborne again in time for the 50th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. The book noted in passing that the luxury passenger airship never recovered after 1945. Cavalli started going to bed as soon as classes ended, sleeping through dinner and waking after midnight to use the projector. He made up the lost meals at breakfast. In 1917, he disabled the radio of the Zeppelin L-59 long enough for the ship to miss the recall message and reach its destination in German East Africa. As a result, during the 1930s, the Graf Zeppelin made a couple of voyages to Cape Town, but inevitably the war ended all that. Cavalli did get a nice Art Deco poster showing a Zeppelin over the pyramids to put on his dorm room wall. He tried going back to San Francisco in 1864 and giving Frederick Marriott a couple of uncut diamonds and a printout of suggestions to approve his aviator airship. The result was that in the 1930s, America purchased four big Navy airships instead of only two. The three that survived Pearl Harbor were scrapped. He gave the German Navy's airship commandant, Peter Strasser, a bad case of pneumonia in 1915 so that Zeppelins were used as reconnaissance platforms and fleet scouts rather than strategic bombers. More ships and skilled airshipmen survived the war and the Graf Zeppelin was filled with American helium. All nine passenger airships were scrapped in 1939. He stood among the sand dudes on the North Carolina coast with the dart gun umbrella in his hand, but went home again. He did manage to ride from Rio to Friedrichshafen above the Graf Zeppelin, and even exchanged a few pleasantries with Hugo Eckner. Dr. Eckner was convinced the airship could maintain its position despite the growing competition from airplanes. He gestured around the comfortable lounge. Who would not trade a cramped seat in a noisy box for this? Cavalli agreed. Anna tapped on the door of his dorm room. I know what you've been doing after hours. The projector keeps a record of every time it's used. I don't know what you're talking about. Good reaction, but I checked the times and places. Frederickshafen, Lakehurst, San Diego. The London trip had me puzzled until I found out the air minister came down with pneumonia the next day. He insisted on going to India early, and the R-101 crashed. Give me one good reason why I shouldn't tell temporal high integrity about you. I've been careful. I haven't made any major changes. None of these are butterfly points. Glad to hear they're certified safe by a first-year trainee. Look, I'm not hurting anyone. It's just a little side project. A hobby. John, it's not going to work. Airships had their day from 1900 to World War II. The war changed everything too much. They couldn't survive as military craft, and they couldn't make money as passenger liners. Airplanes just got too good. I thought of maybe stopping the Wright brothers. What? But I changed my mind. Too big a butterfly. He looked at her. I still don't understand something. Why don't we do more? Why don't we change things? We've got the power. Major changes would erase us. So what? It would be a better world for everyone else. Maybe time travel would get invented sooner. You can't know it would be better. Stop World War II and you could cause something worse. Maybe a nuclear war. Better the devil we know, eh? He looked at her. I take it you want my master key, too? If you don't give it up, I'll have to call in temporal high integrity. He sighed and dug in a pocket. Here, 
I got it from Dr. Sterling's office when he made me help move his plants. She took the key and turned to go. Now be sure you don't try any history editing yourself, he said. He wasn't sure how long he had. She might try to use the key herself, or Dr. Sterling might, and then they'd realize it was just the key to his dorm room. No time for much preparation. He checked a date in the library, let himself into the supply room, and hid in an unused classroom until dinner time. The stage was just warming up when somebody started pounding on the door. Cavalli leapt onto the platform just as the frosted glass smashed and a temporal integrity agent reached inside to undo the deadbolt. The last thing he saw of the time center was Anna's face. She was shouting something, but it was drowned out by the hum of the field projector. He hoped he'd been clever, setting the controls for Berlin in early 1932. Maybe the T.I. agents would assume he was going for Hitler and concentrate on guarding his apartment and Nazi party headquarters. But Cavalli spent as little time in Berlin as possible. An hour after arriving, he was having dinner aboard the express to Munich. At midnight, he got a room in a cheap but tidy hotel in Friedrichshafen. Dr. Eckner? This particular morning, Hugo Eckner looked tired and a little irritable. Running an airship line in the depths of the Depression would do that. Yes, good morning. My secretary says you have come from America with a business proposal. Actually, no, I just told her that to get in here. Eckner scowled. I do not have time for sightseers. Oh, no, it's about politics. The Central Party and the Social Democrats have invited you to run for president. Ah, a reporter, and a very good one, too. That was all discussed in strictest confidence. I'm afraid I can say nothing. You must accept the offer. I cannot. Hindenburg is a hero. He is the only thing keeping Germany from falling into anarchy right now. But he's going to give the chancellorship to Hitler. That little fraud? Impossible. The president is not a fool. The Nazis are the biggest party and they're in favor of rearming Germany. Field Marshal Hindenburg approves of that. This is all speculation. Besides, my zeppelins keep me too busy to enter politics. Cavalli hesitated for a split second, then reached into his pocket and pulled out his computer. Watch this, he said, and called up the encyclopedia entry on Hitler. Eckner raised his eyebrows when he saw the little glowing screen in the young stranger's hand, but then he began to actually watch the newsreel shots and read the text. Another war? Worse than the first. By the end of it, Germany was in ruins. Thirty million people were dead, and Zeppelins were gone forever. How? Eckner stopped and composed himself. Never mind. You have traveled in time, like the man in Mr. Wells's story. Or possibly you are an angel, like the one sent to Lot. But I am afraid it is still impossible. Even if I ran, the Nazis would oppose me. They know I loathe them. Cavalli took out the package he'd stolen from Mission Supply and poured a heap of diamonds onto the table. These are worth about ten million pounds, he said. You can blanket the country with ads, rent stadiums for campaign rallies, and hire guards to keep the brown shirts away. Eckner picked up one diamond and scratched a vase with it, then quickly put it down again as if it was hot to the touch. He was silent for a while. I do not think I am qualified to be president of Germany, he said at last. You're an economist by training and you've kept the Zeppelin company going through war and revolution and economic collapse. You're a national hero. And from everything I've read about you, you seem like a decent man. Germany needs a decent man now, Dr. Eckner. The world needs one. Eckner looked at him out of those pouchy, basset-hound eyes. Who are you? Why are you doing this? Cavalli was just about to give him another spiel about the need to stop Hitler, but then he stopped and shrugged. 
I guess I just like Zeppelins, he said. I figure with you as president, there will be lots of Zeppelins. Nine months later, Cavalli was in the lounge of the Graf Zeppelin over the Atlantic. The window was open and he was holding a shift bracelet. If he hit return now, what would happen? Would he snap forward to Time Center or whatever occupied the site in the no-Hitler future? Would he just pop out of existence? He watched it fall to the blue water below, then went to the bar to refresh his drink. The Zeppelin droned on into the unknown. And that was our story. There's something intriguing about doing something big for, for a little reason. We do it all the time, we just don't think about it. I have a friend with a crippling fear of flying, and he did all of his convention travel by car or train, even if it was cross-country. Days on a train just to shake an author's hand. We toil in gardens for hours just to get the pleasure of looking at a flower. And as the story said, there are many risks to stopping major historical events, even if the benefits are obvious. But I bet no one but James L. Cambius thought about what the negation of Hitler would do to the airship world. If you want to know a secret, when doing my When I Get Rich dreams, I think I'll buy a major plot of land and build an airship hangar and hire people to start building. And I'm not talking about something tacky like the Goodyear blimp. I'm talking real airships. The kind of thing that would appear in a book by Jay Lake. But, you know, I do need a new back porch. So that's kind of my priority right now. But, someday. Arr, avast and belay, you skiffy lovers. I be assistant content pirate Captain Nathan, and this be the feedback for episode 328, Surviving the E-Booklipse by Randy Henderson. <clears throat> uh, this was the story of a struggling author trying to make it big in a future publishing industry demolished by e-book pirating and loss of protections for intellectual property. In the future, authors return to the patronage system of the Renaissance-era artists, performing their books in readings and seeking to attract wealthy patrons to support them while the underclasses enjoy cheaply produced copies of their most famous works. A, uh, a real mixed bag of opinion this week. Some people loved it, a few others hated it, and several people felt that, like a parasitic fungus that evolves to a symbiotic relationship, the story took some time to grow on them, but they were happy it did. Forum user Bluetube had some concerns, saying... The only downside was that this is a story about authors. I have the same qualms when I hear a radio play about writers of plays. As a consumer of books, I care about the themes in the story, but some of the details around the trials and tribulations of authors came across as self-indulgent. Our resident moderator and slush reader extraordinaire, Aitan Z, weighed in and said, What's interesting to me is the attitude of the protagonist toward his writing. He was all set against writing commercial stuff and devoted to his principles even if it meant disaster, until it stopped being about himself and became about getting revenge on his adversaries. I think that shows something important about human nature. We're all a lot more eager to give up on our principles once it becomes not just a matter of success, but a matter of beating someone. Some folks took issue with the story's premise. A disbelieving amateur simian asked, in this world, authors are so underappreciated and yet so vitally important 
that the mega-rich will regularly gather to watch unknowns read sections of their unedited first drafts? Not only that, but bootlegged, dubbed recordings of these performances go viral? Formite PPI chimed in, adding, And not only that, there are no commercial markets for them, even when pirated versions are wildly popular? Author Randy Henderson was fairly active and quite friendly in the thread, and he took a moment to clarify his point of view. The story itself was meant as a satire, of course, taking people's most doomalicious predictions of how ebooks are going to destroy fiction, or at least the incentive to create quality fiction, and pushing that to the extreme. It was certainly fun to write. I fully admit the whole economic model of it is a bit shaky, but I'm not being a true hard sci-fi futurist predicting that the emo may really take over publishing and the patronage system will actually return. So there you have it. Come back next week for cheap cell phone camera bootlegs of the comments for episode 329, Pairs. Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or charge for it. All other rights are reserved by our authors. We're a pro-paying market, meaning we live on your donations. We are, of course, at escapepod.org, and our sister podcasts are at pseudopod.org for horror and podcastle.org for fantasy. Any donation to Escape Pod is also shared with our, the other podcasts, so all of Escape Artists benefits. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. So that was our show for this week. Our quote comes from Gilbert Keith Chesterson. There is no doubt that a Zeppelin is a wonderful thing, but that did not prevent it from becoming a horrible thing. Thanks for listening. Have fun, and be mighty. <laughs> <laughs>